All right, again, good to see everybody. Glad you could be here on this beautiful Sunday morning. It started off a little bit cool, a little bit foggy. Thought that was gonna scare away some of our Southern California natives. Like, I don't know, this is pretty bad weather. Not sure if I can handle it. But it's good to see all of you today. We're gonna to be continuing our study of the book of Acts. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts chapter six. And we're gonna be looking at the first seven verses today. And before we get into our scripture reading, prayer, and the message, let me ask you a question. If you could raise your hand, let me know here. Uh, raise your hand if you enjoy conflict. Go ahead. Raise your hand if anyone. Okay. Oh, no. I was going to say, if you do. All right. So most people don't enjoy conflict, or even if they do, they don't know how to handle it well. And we can tend to think of conflict as inherently being a bad thing. But what I want to show you today is that although conflict can lead to bad things, by the grace of God, conflict can lead to Christ-likeness. It can actually be redeemed by the Holy Spirit to actually identify already existing problems in order to make us more like Jesus. And so I'm calling today's message the redemption of conflict. The redemption of conflict. If the goal of life is not simply to get out of problems or even to solve them, but to become more like Jesus, if that is our deepest desire and our deepest goal, then conflict can actually be a crucial tool in achieving Christ-likeness. And so I believe God has a word for all of us today because I know we all have conflict somewhere, somehow, with somebody. And if you don't right now, I guarantee you that you will shortly. So let's go ahead and begin by reading the Word of God together, which is going to be Acts 6, 1 through 7. We'll pray and get into today's message. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this opportunity to meet together in the tabernacle of the saints, to wait for a word from you, 
to encounter the living God through the living word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that if we are in any way in conflict with you, if we are in any way in conflict with your word, if we are in any way in conflict with your kingdom, we pray that you would reveal the substance of the problem. We pray you'd reveal the depth of our sin. And we pray that you would remedy that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would transform us by renewing our minds, Lord. We know that the mind has a role to play in the Christian life. We know that we all have emotions. We know that emotions matter, but they do not matter absolutely. You have given us minds and you expect our minds to be used. And so we pray this morning by your grace, you would grant us the ability to listen to the things that are said, to ponder them, to consider them, to be willing to exchange any ideas in our minds that are opposed to the word that will be spoken. We pray that you would grant us power, Lord, because we realize we can know in our minds what we ought to do, and yet we find deep within us a desire for something other than you that thwarts that word that we know. And so, Lord, we pray not only for a clarity of word, of speech, of wisdom, but we pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray that you would remove desires in our hearts for anything that is evil, anything that is unbecoming a child of God. And we pray that you would replace it with a passion for your kingdom. To live a fully surrendered and sacrificed life for the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. For it is in him that we find true joy. And so Lord, fill us now even to overflowing in expectation as we hear the word of God. We ask now for this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I'm calling this message the redemption of conflict. And if you remember, this is early in the life of the church. This is uh, at the very beginning of the Christian church. We're calling this series Authentic Church because as I've said, one of my kind of key points is that for most people today, most people in America, when you ask them, what is the church? What is the church for? What does the church do? What are you looking for in a church? Because we actually have so many churches, at least in most parts of America, certainly uh, Orange County, Southern California, there's just so many churches. That's actually the problem. It's not like, oh, there's not enough. You, you look, it used to be in the phone book, right? But now you Google it, all right, I moved to a new neighborhood, looking at church, you're like, ah, oh, where do I start? You know, it's gonna take me years just to find a good church to go to. So we have all these churches. And for most people, the critical questions of what is a church, what's it supposed to be, is answered not so much from the Bible, but from their experience. So you sort of begin with desires. What do I want the church to be, right? Everybody's looking for the church to kind of conform to their image. They want a place that reflects what they already believe, what they already desire. That may or may not be wrong, right? But how do you know? You need to have the Bible to know what are those desires you're looking for. Are they of God? Or is this just a religious way of living out your sin? Because that's what the Pharisees did. They had a religious way of living out their sin. 
For many people, they begin with their desires. They're looking for something. It's it, There might be some good things there by the grace of God, but there's things that are warped, that are twisted, that are perverted by sin. And then you have church experiences. Some of us have had church experience since we grew up. I mean, I have church experience, you know, all the way back to my very earliest memories. I cannot even think of my life apart from the church. I was raised in the church. I was a, a pastor's kid. I was going to you know more services than most kids were going to in a given week whether I wanted to or not and I was going to these things and so for me most I would even say most of what I understood the church was and was meant to be did not come from the Bible as much as it did from my own experience and naturally for many people that experience might be bad it might not be good it's never going to be perfect but in some cases maybe it, maybe it was pretty rough it was pretty bad and so you start to think, well, that's what church is. And if the church is bad and it's full of hypocrites and it's bad experiences and it's judgmental people and it's just religious stuff that has nothing to do with real life, if you think that's what church is, well, no wonder you're probably not going to ever want it or if you want it, you won't stick with it. So it's important that we go back to the Bible and we say, as much as possible, we try to start with a clean slate if we can and say, look, I want the church to be certain things. That may or may not be right. I've experienced church growing up. That may or may not be right. I want to know what does God in his word say that it is? What does God in his word say is the purpose, the nature, and the mission of the church? Because if those critical questions are no longer defined by God himself, then I dare say we are not really being a church. Even if we slap stickers on it and put names on our website, something, something, church, it won't matter because by God's own criteria who created the church, it is no longer a church. So we're calling this study in the book of Acts, Authentic Church. Now we're early on in the story and what I've showed you is that Satan in various ways is always trying to destroy the church and you need to know that. Satan hates the church. Satan hates Jesus. He tried to exterminate Jesus, right? Satan thought he had a victory on the cross. Probably was his greatest moment. If, if a devil can have joy, it was probably at that moment. Aha! I finally got him. But of course, Easter Sunday rolls around after Good Friday, and Jesus defeats the power of sin and death, thereby thwarting the devil. So what do you think the devil's going to do with the remainder of his time? He's not going to twiddle his thumbs. He's not going to sit around and just you know, do nothing. He can't get Jesus anymore. Well, what do you think he's going to go after? The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. Followers of Christ. The church. So Satan, from the very beginning, has been relentlessly going after the church. Sometimes it's, it's very explicit. It's obvious Satan is doing it. Other times, you don't see Satan. It just looks like people. It's just stuff people do. But ultimately, whether Satan is visible or invisible, his desire is always to destroy the church. And when I say destroy the church, that sounds sort of abstract, the church. He wants to destroy churches, local churches. This church, that church, that church, that church, with these people. He wants to pit people in this church against each other. He wants to take husbands and wives, and he wants to turn them against each other. He wants to turn people's sons and daughters against their parents and parents against their kids. This is what he wants to do. And so none of us should be naive and gullible 
when we get involved with a church, when we encounter problems of some kind, or when we encounter problems or conflicts in our family life. The devil is aiming to destroy these things. Now, so far, he's tried two basic tactics. Number one, he's tried good old-fashioned sin, and we talked about this specifically, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, which interestingly was hypocrisy. Remember, it wasn't just lying. Yes, they lied to the Holy Spirit, but why did they do that? Because Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look like they were more sanctified than they really were. That was what it was. It was actually hypocrisy. So Satan goes, and, and that's how bad hypocrisy is. It's not like a side thing, a little issue. Oh, the other sins are really bad, but hypocrisy is not bad. In Satan's mind, he's like, man, if this church, if in its very DNA, I can insert hypocrisy so that the church grows up around hypocritical behavior where everyone is lying and pretentious about their walk, then I can destroy this church. And so we saw that Satan tried to come in through sin, namely the sin of hypocrisy, to destroy the church. But we saw that that ultimately was thwarted. It didn't work. Then we saw another tactic. As spiritual as any of us are, as long as you've been walking with Jesus, if, if someone threatens your physical life, if they threaten your bank account, if they threaten your economy, if, if they threaten your, your physical health, they threaten you legally with lawsuits or, or jail time, that's going to rattle a lot of people. And so the second thing Satan did is he tried to rattle the church with legal and physical threats. We saw that the apostles were arrested, they were on trial. I mean, talk about intimidating. They were surrounded by the who's who of Jewish society, which was effectively a, a legal establishment. And they surrounded them, and then they threatened them. Hey, we're going to sue the pants off you. That would be like modern lingo today. We're going to sue the pants off of you. You'll never, you'll never get a job in this town again. Nobody's going to respect you again. You're going to be bankrupt. You're going to be broke. And they threatened them. But we see that that didn't work. Finally, they arrest the apostles again. And this time, not only do they threaten them, they actually give them a beating. Imagine that, physically, just being punched in the face repeatedly, beaten, flogged, because you're going to follow Jesus. And did it stop them? No. The opposite happened. The church grew and grew and grew. As the church demonstrated fidelity to Christ and his gospel, as the church continued to show boldness, parousia, boldness in the face of persecution, all that happened is it made the church grow, which is incredible. But now Satan is going to try a third tactic. He's going to work through interpersonal conflict. And so this third tactic is something where, again, it's, it's not sin per se. It could be. I'm going to talk about the details. It could be that there's sin involved. I'm also going to show you it's possible there wasn't sin involved. It's just imperfection. It's just too finite people and they don't fully understand each other and there's a misunderstanding and in dealing with many people there's always the chance for oversight so it's a chance there's not even sin involved but conflict can come in even when there's no sin and it can in turn become the occasion for sin have you ever had that where it was just a misunderstanding nobody sinned but then the way somebody respond they raise their voice in a condescending tone and then another person responds with belittling speech. And then the next thing you know, it's like cinerama happening. But the thing that started was not sinful per se. It was just conflict. So what is happening here is the potential to destroy the church and divide the church. And it centers around conflict. Now, there's four steps that we're going to unpack here that we're going to see that the apostles do 
and is a model for us today, whether it's individually, in your marriage, in your family, or even us as the church. Four things we're going to acknowledge, number one. We're going to confirm, number two. We're going to delegate, number three. And number four, we're going to grow. So we're going to see acknowledge, confirm, delegate, grow. So number one, acknowledge. Acknowledge what? Acknowledge the problem. Step one in a conflict is acknowledge the problem. Now I know that sounds entirely too simple to even be mentioned, but it's not, is it? Many people, when there's a conflict, what do they do? They pretend it's not there. Or they sweep it under the proverbial carpet. Now, we've all done that at times, I'm sure. But what happens if you keep sweeping something under the carpet? Eventually, you have a, a mound under the carpet that's big enough to trip over, right? I mean, I've seen this with my kids. Whenever I ask them to clean something, right? I, I don't know why I do this. I guess it's just masochism. But I, I ask the kids to clean. And the cleaning is usually hiding. It's like hiding stuff. You know, it's, it's hiding stuff under the bed. It's hiding. And eventually, whatever they're doing, it's not really cleaning. It's hiding. It, and it just starts pouring out everywhere. Um, I, I have to confess, I remember when I was a, a little kid, my mom, before it was cool to be all healthy, and before there was Trader Joe's and Mother's Market and all this stuff, like, you know, back in the 80s, uh, my mom was always into health. And there was this place in Napa, California called the Golden Carrot. don't even know what in the world that was. There was a very unique breed of people that would shop there. But we would go to the Golden Carrot. And all my friends would get like the junk vitamins. It's like 90% sugar. And then they put like a vitamin in it, you know, like Flintstones vitamins. My mom would get me the legit stuff, right? Like she would get me vitamins that tasted like vitamins. And so she would give us these vitamins and I'm, you know, I'm about six, seven years old. And you know what I would do with them, right? Well, I certainly would not eat them. We, we had these leather kitchen chairs. And, and if you tried, you could shove them down in between the two seats. Now, when the first vitamin went in, worked like a charm. Nobody ever knew. You could sit there, have guests over, they could sit in that very chair where the crime was perpetrated, and no one's gonna know. But eventually, as one vitamin after another got shoved in there, and time and air and other things began hitting those vitamins, suddenly they started emerging out of the chair and they were also discolored and had some kind of fur on them. And then by that point, my mom is like, what in the world have you been doing? Don't you realize these vitamins are for your health? They're actually expensive. They're not the junk Flintstone kinds. And you're ruining our leather seats. And I'm just like, well, mom, I didn't want to take them. And I think for a lot of us, that's what we do with conflict. We don't acknowledge it. We, we just try to hide it and pretend it's not there because it's an undesirable thing. I want to point out that if we're going to deal with conflict in a healthy way, you've got to acknowledge it. And that's a challenge. And so for some people, that, that might even be the most important thing for you today is acknowledging the problem. Because if you say you don't have a problem, if you say you don't have a conflict, are you, how hard are you going to work on it? Probably not hard, maybe not at all, right? So you've got to acknowledge that you have a problem. And I want to show you that that's exactly what the apostles did. They, there was a problem. 
and they acknowledge the problem. So let's dive into the specifics a little bit because this is real life. This is not just, you know, a story with a lesson. This is history. This really happened. It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, so the context is the church is growing, good things are happening. Ironically, when good things are happening, more problems can become possible, right? I mean, that's the fact of the matter. The more people, more people you have, the more problems potentially have. The more you grow your business, the more problems potentially have in your business. The more money you're bringing. A lot of people are like, oh, I just want to make tons of more, more money, more problems, is the, <laughs> is the great theologian Puff Daddy once said. So it's like all this stuff coming in, the more of anything can create more problems. And that's what's happening here. So it's actually, ironically, a good thing, growth, that led to the problem. So in the, those days, the number of the disciples was multiplying, and there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being delected in the daily distribution. Now, I want to point out a few things here. So what was happening? So you had two different groups of people, two different major groups of people. Now, I've heard it erroneously said multiple times that this was a matter of racism. Okay, this is not a matter of racism. That's not to say that racism couldn't have happened by any early Christian whatsoever, although racism kind of in the modern contemporary sense was a little, it was actually foreign to the ancient world. It was more a matter of linguistics and, and ethnicity and culture. It, people didn't think in terms of race the way we do today. But there was an issue. And so what was it exactly? And if we're saying that this isn't a matter of race, it wasn't the Hebrews and the Hellenists, well, what are exactly are the Hebrews and the Hellenists? Now, these two terms denote primarily ethnic and cultural markers. Ethnic and cultural markers. So, first of all, one of the most important building blocks of a culture is language, right? Language. So, the Hellenists were Jews who primarily or solely spoke Greek. So, their cultural background, they might have ethnically been Jews, but culturally they were Greek. They spoke Greek. Greek would have been their mother tongue. Now, within that group, some probably knew a little bit of Aramaic, maybe a little bit of Hebrew, but probably not a lot, and some probably knew none. Greek language. Along with the language, probably is a little bit of the culture as well. So there were some Greek cultural practices. Some people want to draw kind of a sharp line and say the Hellenists were kind of like anti-temple people. They were a little bit more, a little bit stronger anti-Judaism uh, than the Hebrews. I don't think that's a warranted assessment biblically. It's possible that some were, but I think what we can know is the Hellenists are Jews. So this is not a racial thing, but this is a linguistic thing. They speak Greek. They have Greek culture. The Hebrews on the other hand, are people who speak primarily Aramaic and some Hebrew. So Aramaic and Hebrew. Remember, you think Hebrew, but in the exile, Aramaic became sort of the dominant language, the lingua franca of those Jews living in Palestine at the time of Jesus. So there's Hebrew there. Hebrew is probably, if you were in Palestine at the time of Jesus and you were to attend a synagogue, it would very likely be in Hebrew. But outside synagogue, they would talk more in Aramaic to one another. Now, once again, the same thing is true for the Hebrews that is true of the Hellenists, which is they had a primary language, but they probably, a good number of them, probably had a secondary language. So even those Hebrews who primarily spoke Aramaic and Hebrew, 
they also probably knew a little bit of Greek. Even in Galilee, we've actually found inscriptions in Galilee dating to the time of Jesus that are in Greek. So we know that Greek, again, was, would not have been totally formed, but once again, it's something where there is a cultural divide. So imagine having a church where maybe it's somewhere 50-50 or 60-40, one group that speaks primarily this language, and on the other hand, 60 or 40 that speaks a different language. Now, is that sin, that people speak different languages? No. But could you see how that could create potential conflict? Yes. I mean, at the very least, you've got some communication problems, unless you've got people who can translate that to one another. But it's more than language. It's also a little bit culture. So already, you simply have complexity. You have diversity. And as wonderful as diversity is, you have to be able to work through the challenges. And that's always going to be there. And so a complaint rose up in this context because of these different groups. And here was the complaint. The second half of verse 1 says, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, and on that reading, the Greek word hati is translated because. If you read it that way, it sounds like this, in fact, was happening. So read that again in this translation. It says, there was a complaint against the Hebrews, so the primarily uh, Hebrew Aramaic speaking group, by the primarily Jewish Greek speaking group, because, because, noting causation, their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, in that reading, it would sound like Luke, who's the author of Acts, is affirming that's what happened. The Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. They were being neglected. However, Greek sometimes make things more clear. So sometimes in English you read something go, oh, it could be A, it could be B. But if you knew Greek, you go, nope, it can only be A. That's, that's all that's possible. Or it can only be B. Other times, like here, it's the opposite. In English, because sounds very clear. That is a causal statement. Because. Here is the cause. Here is what's happening. In Greek, the Greek word hati can also be translated that. So if you translated it that, look at the difference. It would say, a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists that their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Instead of saying that this was the cause, it would simply be recording what they were saying. In other words, is it possible for somebody to complain about something that is not in fact happening? Is that possible? Yes. Yeah. It, it happens all the time. Somebody goes, uh, you, you, you were rude to me, and you're like, Oh, I was rude. Yeah, yeah, your, your tone. Like, actually, well, well, my, you know, my dad has cancer, and I was running to the hospital. So I'm sorry if my tone sounded bad, but really, I, I was preoccupied. And they're like, oh, okay. I, I thought you were being rude, and, and I took that personally. But you had a very serious medical issue for a family member, and you were literally running from the church service to your car. I understand. I was wrong about that. There can be misunderstanding. Uh, perception matters. And by the way, this is important. I'm not just having fun with my Greek here. This, this actually matters. Because in the church, there are two basic kinds of problems. Real and perceived. Real and perceived. Not all perceived problems actually exist. But, even if it's just a perceived problem, many times they ought to be addressed. Because even a perceived problem, if believed by somebody has an impact on their relationships. If somebody believes, for example, that the Hebrew group was neglecting the Hellenists, even if it wasn't happening, 
imagine all week long, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're a widow and you're, you're being overlooked every day and, or, or your best friend is a widow and they're being, you could be sitting there like stirring in your own internal, mm, oh, hypocrites, here they go again, here comes the sermon, but we all know they don't practice what they preach because they neglect us every week. You know, so even if it's not happening, the person can perceive it and it has an impact on the life of the church. So whether this was real, it was really happening, and, and I think it's possible. And as I mentioned, it may not have been born out of sin. Some people jump to that conclusion. It could have been, okay? It could have been somebody like, oh, I hate the I hate the Hellenists, you know, they speak different language. That's kind of a traitor to our people group. Our language is pure and yours is not. So it, it could have been. It also could have just been practical. Well, it was easier to communicate with you guys. I know you guys. You're from Palestine. Maybe our families know each other. We've known each other for years. Whereas these Greek-speaking diaspora Jews, that means the Jews that were scattered all over, but maybe have since come to Jerusalem later in life, namely around the time that they're widows. And we're just naturally, if we have X number of resources and we have you know X times two number of people, well, who do you think I'm going to try to help first? Probably the people that I, and, and that's just a practical thing. So it is possible that sin was involved. It's also possible that it wasn't. It's possible this was a real problem. It's also possible that it was perceived. But what I want you to know is, in either case, in any of those cases, what did the apostles not do? They did not sweep it under the carpet. They knew that this had the potential to divide the church. And so step one, they acknowledged the problem. Verse two, we start to see their response. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now here's the second thing they did, and this is confirm. Confirm your values. After step one, you've acknowledged the problem. Step two, confirm your values. One of the other critical steps we all make in conflict is we can sort of just rush to, to solve the problem on the surface. I, you know, this person is raising their voice. They're getting all upset, right? I mean, I think a lot of us have done customer service at some time in our life and they used to have the saying, I don't know if they do anymore, but the customer is always right. By the way, if you ever travel to the UK, the customer is always right is not a part of their culture. It's actually, they, they don't do tipping, although I've heard they, they started to change a little bit with regard to that. First time I was in the UK, I was totally shocked. The the server comes over and they're acting like, you know, they're doing me a favor by even being there. They're like, here's the, here's the, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, is that person rude? They're like, no, they're not rude. That's just how we do it here. There's no, there's no customer service and there's no tipping. It's just a part of our culture. So what we want to acknowledge here is that the apostles are summoning people to deal with this problem. They want to confirm their values. What they don't want to do is customer service. Again, if we can kind of make people happy, calm people down, make people feel good, great, sure, knock yourself out. But we're trying to do something a little bit deeper here in the Christian church. We want to deal with the heart. We want to deal with heart issues. And so one of the things you have to do, and you've got to be careful, if you've been shaped by the customer is always right, and by the way, and I know this, um, many churches do customer service. That, that's the way they do things. They just want to keep people happy because there's practical issues. But the problem is we have to confirm our values. 
because the temptation is always to give up our theology in order to address practical problems, to give up our theology, our beliefs. One of the songs we sang was, I believe, right? I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I so we're, we're rehearsing the language of the Nicene Creed. We're rehearsing the foundation of the Christian faith. And we have to go back to those things and say, we must guard these more than we desire to guard anything else. And that means sometimes people are going to complain and say, we'd like you to change something. And if we immediately have a customer service attitude, we could accidentally, maybe even intentionally, change something that ought never to be changed. And so if churches in America are in customer service mode, they can start to abandon their doctrines. They can start to abandon their faith. And this has been happening for centuries. This has been happening for centuries. Again, starting off smaller and in different ways, and it's becoming more and more prominent. Churches are hearing people say, hey, we think instead of being loving, you call yourself loving, but we say you're hateful. And you say, gosh, I don't want to be called hateful. Why are you calling hateful? Because you don't approve over the sexual things that I do with my body. And you go, oh, gosh, well, the Bible does seem to say that that's wrong. But you're saying that, that I'm hateful and, and unloved. Well, customer service. I guess I'll just wipe that part out of the Bible. I'll skip it. I won't teach it. I'll, I'll do jujitsu on the text and, and kind of force it to submit to a, a strange and alien interpretation in order that I may do customer service for you. Churches are doing this left and right. There are many Christian values with, which I think are contemporary and I think the society would love them if we preach them and proclaim them. But there's also many things in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospel that are utterly abhorrent to the secular society in which we live. And so as much as we care about, yes, yes, we want to make people happy, it cannot be our core value. And so notice what the apostles did. They didn't say, hey, we'll, we'll just take care of it. We'll abandon what we're doing and we'll go, because that's the most important thing in the world is just making sure people don't complain. That's not the case. Another thing I, I should mention out is that word com complaint in Greek is gangusmas, and it's the same word used in Numbers chapter 11 to record the grumbling of Israel. So for, for a reader of the Bible, especially in the, in the Old Testament, uh, grumbling is a bad word. God doesn't like grumbling. He doesn't like complaining. He doesn't want... So there's like, you can see there's this danger coming up. You kind of, the biblical reader goes, uh-oh, uh-oh. I recognize this, this complaining and grumbling happened in the wilderness with Israel. And what did God do? Moses chose more leaders so that he would not abandon his primary calling, but that these things could be addressed through new leadership. There's a direct parallel between this text and Numbers chapter 11. So they acknowledged the problem, but notice, notice what they did. They went back and confirmed their values. What were their values? It says it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So the situation has come to the point where they can no longer do both. They cannot both labor in the word of God and prayer and 
tend to the practical matters of distri distributing food and whether this was food or money, we're not quite sure. It could have been either, it could have been both. It could have been like a daily soup kitchen where somebody's showing up and handing out food to somebody. Uh, it, it could have been um, some coinage possibly as well, could have been a little bit of both. We're not sure in some way, shape or form. Probably up until this point, the, the apostles were trying to do a little bit of both. They're like, hey, we'll take care of just this. Oh, this got to be done. This has got to be done. Oh, and, and we, we got to you know, make sure we're meditating and praying over the word and laboring in it and, and giving that word out. Not just when we gather as a group, but as, as our leaders come to us, as there's problems in the church, the, the pastor is applying the word of God to all these different interpersonal situations throughout the life of the church. And what they said is we have a priority of ministry. And it's not only a priority of ministry in a, a very specific sense, but it is the specific task of the church. And notice the word of God, proclaiming the word of God is the central task of the church. And they confirmed that. And once again, if you don't confirm, if the church does not confirm that the teaching of the word of God is a priority, then believe it or not, in a church, it is incredibly easy to give up spending time in the laboring of the Word of God and the teaching the Word of God and applying the Word of God to just deal with practical stuff. For many churches in America today, it's, it's just business stuff. Using various marketing tactics, uh, business growth strategies, and all these kinds of things. And I'm not saying that's wrong per se, that's a conversation for another time. But simply to say, you could spend all your time doing that. I guarantee you this. Insofar as any of these modern methods of, of growth and, and marketing and everything else, insofar as they're even redemptive, they are never to become the central task of the spiritual leadership of the church. Never. If the leadership of a local church is more preoccupied with posting pictures of themselves and, and doing this and that and just cramming as many people in as they possibly can and, and you know, doing carnivals or whatever, whatever it is, if they're leaving the word of God to do that, they're forsaking their core values. And so for the apostles, this is not snobbish, because I realize in English, it could sound snobbish. <laughs> it is not desirable for us to leave the word of God and serve mere tables. <laughs> you know, it, it can sound very snobby. You know, like they're, they're swirling their glasses and shot, man. Sixty-eight minutes. I don't know that I want to do this. You know, where's the servants? You know, that's not what's happening. No, this is a real ministry. And they acknowledge it by the fact that they're going to appoint men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to take care of it. They acknowledge the problem. They are going to deal with it. However, before they dealt with the problem, it's almost as though they took a step back. And they said, what are our values? What's worth dying for? That's actually, I know that might not sound practical if you're, you know, you're arguing with your spouse, you're fighting, you're going to church to worship the Lord and smile at people. And you're like, all right, all right, you know, this, this and that, you get there, and, you know, you're all smiling and stuff. It might not sound practical to confirm your values, namely the things that are worth dying for. But I actually think it is intensely practical. Because in the heat of conflict, winning, getting your way, it can almost feel worth dying for. Have you ever argued that way? <laughs> Where me being right 
about what we're going to do with our money or where we're going to go or who said what to who and who was in the right and how we're going to arrange this and who's going to be in control of the finance, you know, all, all this stuff. But it can feel like, man, this is to the death. I, I have to win this thing. But if you remind yourself, really, in life, what is worth dying for? And honestly, it'd be utterly stupid to be willing to die for some of the stuff that we argue over. It's foolish. Stuff in the church that we're arguing over. Stuff that churches between churches and, and pastors and social media are, are arguing and slamming each other. And you go, is this worth dying for? A lot of this stuff is not worth dying for. So the apostles go, look, we belong to Jesus Christ. He is worth dying for. He called us to feed the sheep the word of God. That was Jesus' parting words to Peter. Peter, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Give them the word of God. And so he's saying, look, I'm not saying this issue with the distribution is unimportant. But I am saying that in life, we are finite. Let's set aside the fact we're all sinful for a moment, which we are, but let's just focus on this. We're finite. What does that mean? It means you can't do everything. It means you can't do everything equally well. It means you cannot be in two places at once. You cannot juggle an infinite number of balls in the air. It just will not work. So you acknowledge that, and if you acknowledge that, then you prioritize. And for the Christian church, the priority is the Word of God. This is sort of, we can see the fruit of, of abandoning this priority of the Word of God in the social gospel movement that was very big at the beginning of the 20th century. For many people, they saw problems in urban centers, modern problems. And they thought to themselves, the best way to deal with these social problems, with inequality, um, with bad working conditions and all this kind of stuff in the inner city, the best way to remedy that is to forsake all the teaching of the gospel, to forget insisting that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died on the cross for his sins and that there really is heaven and hell. And it's best if we just take the passages of the Bible that talk about loving people and helping the poor and do, and then we do that. And what they did is effectively what the disciples chose not to do here in Acts 6. Notice that. Instead of saying, hey, we're just, we're, we're just a social work movement. That's what we are. We just do social work. We're just a charitable organization. That's all we are. Notice the apostles could have said, yes, let's jump on that. Let's just forget this religious garb, forget teaching the Bible and spending all the time and energy wrestling over that and understanding it and applying it and living it out. Let's just help people live a better earthly life until they die. Let, let, let's just try to do that. The apostles had that opportunity and they answered with a decided no. No. Because we believe that not only does man's body matter, but he has a soul. Something that much of the secular material world totally denies. So it's consistent. They only care about social ills. Because that's all there is, folks. If that's all you believe there is, I, I, they are consistent. Let's just eat and drink and help others to eat and drink for tomorrow. We all die. But if what the Bible says is true, you are not just a body. You have a soul. And after you die, life is not over. Oh, it's only beginning. And you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you will give an account 
for what you did with your life, namely what you did with the name of Jesus. What did you do with God's Son will be the first question asked you, and it will be the deciding question. And then depending on whether you receive Jesus, it is heaven and resurrection and new earth forever, more joy than you've ever had in your life now with no impurity, with no end, or it is everlasting hell. And if you've ever been through hell in your life now, if you've ever gone through torment, pain, suffering, betrayal, affliction, you have no idea what's coming for you when hell comes around. And if that's true, if that is true, if there is eternity, resurrection, judgment, there's a human soul as well as a body, then there is no way the church can ever throw off the task of preaching the word of God. Amen. And so the disciples stepped back and they said, what is our priority? They confirm their values. It is the word of God. For some of you, we're, we're all Christians, so there should be a confirmation of shared values that we have here. We should all agree on the basics of the Christian faith. We won't agree on all the secondary stuff. And to be a member here in good standing, you don't have to agree on all the secondary things. You can have differences of opinion. But on the essential matters of who God is, who Christ is, that who we are, human beings, we're all sinners in need of a Savior, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. If you get those basic stuff, then you've got those core essentials. And then the second thing is for you, as an individual, to decide what has God called you to do? Because you'll see here that what the apostles were called to do was not the same as the group they were about to appoint over this ministry. So though the church has a shared task and can never give it up, the church has a priority. We are not just a social club. We want to do social good, yes, absolutely. But we should never say, that's all we are. Forget the word of God. Forget living for Jesus, meditating on his word, fellowshipping, etc. But notice this other group had a different focus. So one of the things you'll need to do if you haven't done this already is say, if push comes to shove, and maybe it isn't right now, but if push comes to shove, I cannot do this and this. I cannot be here and there. I cannot be with this person and that person. At the same time, you've got to discern which of these is God's calling me to? You've got to discern your values. And once you discern your values and you believe through prayer, through searching the scripture, through reaching out for wise counsel, godly counsel in the church of God, he puts wisdom in his church. It's here for you if you will but seek it. And if he gives wisdom to you and confirms your values, man, stick with them. And don't just let complaints and conflict and everything else arise in life and pull you away from what matters most. Because I think that happens all the time in our lives and in our churches. But the apostles, by the grace of God, did otherwise. So it is not desirable or pleasing. And by the way, this isn't pleasing to them. Pleasing is used only in two ways. It's either pleasing people or pleasing God in the New Testament. The apostles are not saying this is not pleasing to us. They're saying it would not be pleasing to God for us to leave off the word of God to deal with other matters, even as important as they are. The word of God, preaching the word of God, is pleasing to God. And that is the job of the Christian, to live a life fully pleasing to God. It is not desirable or pleasing to God that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. 
Number three, what we're going to see here is they delegate. Delegate what can't be done to those who can. So again, another thing in conflict is you realize, well, I'm not fully suited to this task. Maybe I, I've identified it. I've confirmed my values. It, it needs to be addressed and in this way. But I, I don't have all the resources to be able to do that. Well, you delegate. This is why God gifts people with so many different gifts. Not only in the local church, but even in society. By God's commons, great. There, there's doctors, there's lawyers, there's uh, mechanics. There's all kinds of people out there to whom you can delegate things. If you've, if you've got a problem with your car and you're not a mechanic, I highly recommend if you're a busy person, go see a mechanic. If you want to try and fiddle around with it when you don't know what in the world you're doing, by the way, and you don't even have time to do it, even if maybe you did know what you're doing, that's the type of thing where you would delegate that. That is the best use of your time or whatever the case might be. So we want to delegate what can't be done to those who can. Again, I, I think this is where a lot of us, we, we error. Either we, we just start taking too much on ourselves. You just go, well, people disappointed me in the past, so I can't always trust people to do so. So I'll just take it on, uh, or you know, or uh, it would take me time to figure out who to delegate it to, um, or or I'm just gonna uh, I'm just gonna put it on them, and then I'm not gonna be responsible to to follow up. Delegating will mean, oh, it's your problem, but I'm not gonna have anything to do with it. No, delegating means you are taking responsibility for the problem, but you recognize you can't fully deal with it, and so you involve others who are gifted and called to that work. That's exactly what we see here beginning in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So notice what they're doing. They recognize there's a conflict. They acknowledged it. They confirmed their values. Their values with such is that I cannot do both. I don't have the time. My priority is A, and therefore we're going to wisely choose good people to handle B. So it wasn't like they said, oh, this is beneath us. The church doesn't need to do social good and bless people and look out for the poor. And the, Of course, we do that. That's a part of what the church has always done. But they appoint people whose tasks can focus on a matter that they cannot do. And so notice there's, there's character involved with this choice. Now granted, this might be different than if you're dealing with a problem outside the church. If you just got a problem with your car, I don't need to know how spiritual the guy is. Are you a good mechanic? You know, are you good with cars? Have you, have you rebuilt a Chevy big block before? Because if you haven't, I don't really know that I want my project being a lesson for you. So I want to know you have some experience. You may not be the, you know, your language may be a little rough, but hey, I believe you can do the job. But in the church, it is different. In the church, we want people who are both of these two things, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That's what we want in the church. That's the one thing the church ought to be involved with. There's very talented, gifted people out of the church, outside. Very gifted, talented people. Sometimes more gifted and more talented in certain areas. But by definition, if they are outside the church, they are not full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And so when we need something that involves the Holy Spirit and wisdom, when the matter of business happens to be something in the church, it's something the church is doing, a ministry, the church is doing. It's not enough that we find gifted, talented people. And again, churches do this all the time. Just look for a gifted, talented person. We also, in addition to that, need to find people full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. 
The kind of person, their character, their walk with God matters in the work that they are doing. And the apostles do this. Again, this whole conversation is not one of whether we want to do ministry or whether we don't. The word ministry or diakonia has already occurred three times now in the four verses that we've read. The issue is whether we want the diakonia, the ministry of the serving of the tables, or the diakonia, ministry of serving the word. Both are ministries. Both are legitimate. The church is a priority of the word of God. The apostles, as they're calling, that is what they are chosen to do. But that ministry of the word also issues forth in practical ministries that blesses people's lives, both spiritually and practically. So they are now proposing we set up a board or a committee. This may be the origin of the office of deacon. There's debate on this. Some people say, yes, the word's been used, diakonia, which is where the word deacon comes from. It's been used three times. Later, in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, we see criteria for deacons, and we see that they are to be full of the Spirit, they are to have uh, wisdom, but they don't teach the Word of God. That's one big difference between a deacon and somebody who is a pastor elder. So that's not there. So some people say, this seems to line up we think the office of deacon is being birthed here. Now, that is possible. Some people say, no, this was just temporary. It was a temporary problem. It wasn't going to last. It wasn't a permanent office. I'm not sure which it is, but I don't think that it matters. I do think that the wisdom is something we can use to establish the office of deacon. If the problem is an ongoing one, or the challenge, or the ministry, the, the good thing, the good thing that we are doing is an ongoing thing, then the office of deacon may become necessary. So they delegated to those who could do the job that they could not do without abandoning their values. Verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I like that. They'll give themselves to it. And this is the idea of vocation. There's difference between vocation and a job. A job is just something you do. Vocation is something you give yourself to. Sometimes you get paid for your vocation. Other times you volunteer for your vocation. But it's important for everyone here, in addition to any job you might have, have a vocation, a calling, because that's where meaning and purpose are found. And without meaning and purpose, I don't know how in the heck you live a meaningful life and avoid depression. I don't know how. Because nobody was made for nothing. And living a life for nothing is empty and depressing. And we're going to fill that emptiness, that darkness, that depression with all kinds of things to simply numb the fact that we feel we have no reason for being alive in the first place. We need to fill it with our calling. And so vocation and calling are not the same. A vocation is something you give yourself to. A job is just something you do. If, you can have a, if your job is your vocation, that's awesome. That's wonderful. But for many people, it may be two separate things. And that's why volunteering... In the church, even if it's some small thing, giving a glass of water in somebody's name, handing a bottle of water, doing this or that, this is a part of vocation because you are connecting to the body of Christ, which is eternally representative of gospel, the gospel message. So vocation and job. We're going to see the wisdom too. This is uh, verse five is actually the unfolding of the wisdom. And I don't know if you would have picked up on this. This was actually brilliant what they did given the problem verse 5 and the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolet, Nicholas a proselyte from Antioch 
I don't know if you noticed, but the seven names, did those sound Hebrew or did those sound Greek? Every single one is a Greek name. Why would they have done that? Why would they have picked every single guy was a Greek? When you already know the church is split up between uh, Hebrews and Greeks or Hellenists. Since the group that felt aggrieved, whether they were or not, were the Greeks. The apostles wisely said, since there's always kind of this suspicion you're being overlooked, it probably wouldn't have been received well if they picked seven Hebrews, seven people from the group you feel are messing your group over. That wouldn't have been wise. Instead, they go, hey, we're going to pick seven people with these criteria, full of spirit and wisdom, but from your group, from the aggrieved group, and they can represent your group and they can handle it. So this was wisdom. This was brilliant on the part of the apostles because the leaders that were being raised up could be trusted by those who felt aggrieved. And that's important. Trust is always important. Just artificially putting people in charge of people who other people don't feel are representing them doesn't work well. And so this was absolutely a display of the apostles' wisdom <laughs> given by the Spirit in establishing these seven, all Greeks, from the group that had been aggrieved. And the result of this the result of acknowledging the problem, the result of confirming their values, and the result of delegating what can't be done to those who can is growth. Notice the redemption of conflict. We went from a problem that may or may not have even been sin. It could have divided the church. It could have destroyed the early church. And look how the story of conflict through Christ and the Spirit ends. Verse 7. Then the word of God spread. And the, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even were obedient to the faith. Wow, in one moment where a conflict rose, and you're like, oh no, how are we going to get out of this? This is going to ruin everything. To Oh my gosh, God took that conflict, and he not only saved us from the conflict, he used it for our growth. We are better off for the conflict we have. We are growing. We are thriving. We are structuring. We are learning wisdom. We are learning what the Spirit wants to do in uniting all people to Jesus, and the result is growth. So if there's anyone here today who's experiencing conflict in their lives personally, Conflict in their marriage, conflict with their family, their children or grandchildren, conflict in the local fellowship between people, conflict in the culture around us. I know that it has that negative feeling and we're tempted to go in all directions, but I hope I've shown you today through this pattern set before us by the early authentic church that if we acknowledge, confirm, and delegate through the spirit and gospel of Jesus Christ, we will grow. And it is my prayer that that is how we as a church face our conflict, redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, we believe that since you are present, Lord, you are speaking to our hearts this morning. And Lord, we know that the journey of a thousand miles always begins with that first step. And so we have an opportunity this morning to take a step. No, it's not the whole thing, nor can it be. And yet you call us 
on the authority of the gospel to take a step of faith this morning, to trust you, to say, Jesus, you are right and I am wrong. Holiness is the way forward with me. Sin is the way I must forsake behind. Lord, if there is conflict that we're facing at this moment, Lord, we do pray that we would learn from what we have read and that the Holy Spirit would apply it in our lives and in our church in such a way that growth is the result. We ask for your blessing now for this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.